series Life in Babylon and we're um, tracking through uh, uh, the book of Daniel and so uh, we're in week four looking at chapter four uh, this morning. Why don't I pray for us as we begin. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive it, our ears to hear it and, Lord, um, our hands to be willing to believe what it is that you're saying and to do what it is that you're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, At the end of the uh, 1980s, Tom Wolfe wrote uh, a novel about uh, a bunch of guys who um, thought of themselves as masters of the universe. Uh, There were some guys who made it big on Wall Street. They basically made a whole lot of money uh, on Wall Street uh, via the stock market And they thought of themselves as masters of the universe. And one of his characters uh, in the novel uh, just felt that because he had a seven-figure salary that he was on top of the world and basically a ruler of the world. Uh, In his heart, he thought uh, that he was part of some elite uh, small group of people who were masters of the universe. Uh, He thought to himself, just like Nebuchadnezzar, by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty, I've really been able to get on top of the world. Uh, Well, that was around the stock market and Wall Street in the 1980s. But as we come to look at King Nebuchadnezzar, um, we really are looking at someone who really was the master of the universe. Uh, He was uh, an emperor of the empire of Babylon, uh, which was absolutely unparalleled in power from the day. Uh, The ancient uh, historian uh, Herodotus uh, even wrote about the wonder and the majesty of his empire, He talked about how the city walls of Babylon were 26 metres wide and 100 metres tall. Now, I do find that hard to believe. Maybe he was prone to a little bit of embellishment. But nonetheless, he said it was topped by 250 defensive towers. Um, I've I've been uh, to, in Germany, one of the museums and and seen um, the actual artefacts, archaeological artefacts of of the walls and the wonder and the majesty of of the empire of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Famously, Herodotus, though, um, talked about how the city walls were so thick that there was a road that ran along the top of them that was wide enough uh, for a four-horse chariot to do a full uh, U-turn. Uh, that, that, that was known uh, widely about the, the wonder and the awe of this empire of Babylon. Um, but he, it wasn't just uh, big and strong, it was also beautiful because um, we know uh, historically now that it was famous for one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Have you heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon that, that he uh, built for his, his wife? Uh, so it was big, it was beautiful, and, and so King Nebuchadnezzar, he really was the master of the universe. And, and I would say that even more so than a guy like Donald Trump or Xi Jinping. Uh, and I, the reason I say that is because he was unparalleled in power. There, were no, there was no other competition. He had crushed them. He was, he was the absolute monarch of the day, unparalleled in power, the master of the universe. But in our story this morning, despite all of that unparalleled power, we're going to see that it all comes crashing down. It all comes crashing down, despite all that power that he had. But the curious thing is, in our story today, is that then he goes on to write a letter to all of his subjects uh, and, and, and all of the kingdom to tell people about his 
demise, to, to tell people the story. And, and even more surprising is that if, if, if you pick up, particularly the start and the end, he's, he's actually happy about it. He, he's really glad. He's, he's praising God about, about this story and he wants everyone to know about it. How, how can that be? How can he want everyone to know and, and how can he be praising God for, 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 for this circumstance that has come upon him? Well, it's as if he's telling everyone there was a spiritual cancer in me. There was something in me that was so bad. It was so dangerous. It was poisoning my soul so deeply that even as drastic and terrible as the treatment was, it was worth it to get it out of my soul. And what was that spiritual cancer? Pride. It was spiritual pride. And how was it that this extraordinary change was able to take place in such an almighty, absolute monarch? Well, that's the story of the rise and fall of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the story that we're looking at this morning. And, and it all begins with a troubled sleep in verses 5 to 18. The one guy who you might think would be able to sleep easy because of all of his glory and all of his power is having a troubled sleep. Verse 4, he tells the people, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me. My fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. So it looks like the first step that uh, the spiritual surgeon, God, God our Heavenly Father, takes in treating the spiritual cancer of pride is to actually remove people from the conditions in which that spiritual pride is able to fester and grow. To remove him from those conditions or those conditions from him. And what were those conditions in verse 4? He says, living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. It seems as though those are the spiritual conditions in which his pride was able to fester and grow. Recently, I was listening to Pastor Rick Warren um, reflect on um, the parable of the four soils. You know that one? And, 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 and on one extreme, you've got this hard soil which represents hardness of heart that um, people resist God and resist his word and won't listen to or follow him. And then down the other extreme, there's the soft, fertile soil in which the seed of God's word can be planted and people are willing to receive it and hear it and obey it and do it. Uh, and then he asks this question, he says, what does God do with this hard soil? How does God deal with hardness of soil? And he says, well, sometimes he, he sends a storm to batter it and to buffet it and to beat it up and to break that ground so that the seed can be planted in that soil and that hard soil can become fertile soil in which his seed is able to grow. I want you to see this morning that the storms of this life, at least for Nebuchadnezzar, the storm that he's about to face is often a precursor to spiritual growth and to spiritual change. It it makes your heart fertile um, fertile soil by the grace of God. It's often through relational breakdown, personal tragedy, through a terrible diagnosis or the loss of a job that we suddenly become more serious about seeking out spiritual things and considering 
reconsidering our lives. And so I want to encourage you this morning that, brothers and sisters, if you're being buffeted, if you're being beaten down by the storms of this life in your current circumstances, please believe me that God is able to use that to prepare fertile soil in your heart to bring about a new beginning, to bring about new life, to bring about new hope. I really mean that. And so I I pray for you this morning that whatever circumstances you're in, and if you're in one of those storms of this life this morning, I I pray that, that the God of hope will be able to fill you with such joy and peace in believing that through the power of the Holy Spirit that you in those circumstances will abound with hope. I pray that for you this morning. Well, I just want to take a few moments as we continue through the story to see this God of hope who works through the storms of life, to see how he's graciously and mercifully at work in Nebuchadnezzar to humble him and to bring about new life and new hope and restoration in a guy you think barely, you would think barely deserves it. And yet here we see God at work. First of all, I want you to see that God speaks to him through a dream. That, that's kind of the, whole sto- the, the main substance of the whole story. It's a dream about this great big tree that he sees. And in verse 12, its foliage was beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and it provided food for all. Of course, this is a dream about the king and, and his kingdom and the majesty that this tree represents the fruitfulness of, of his, his kingdom. But then in the dream, he sees this holy watcher, this angel come down from heaven, and he cries aloud in verse 14, cut the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Then Daniel comes along and and he says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, it's you. The, The dream's about you and your kingdom. He's saying, look, you've done really well. You've done extremely well by the grace of God, but but now God's going to cut you down. Verse 32. He's going to cut you down until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he wills. God speaks to him through a dream. And this is quite literally a wake-up call. He wakes up, terrified. This is a wake-up call from God speaking to him to change his ways, to turn around in order to avoid the coming disaster. And so I wonder how often God for us in his great kindness and mercy tries to offer us a wake-up call about the path that we're going down. It might be through a news story. It might be through a friend, through, through the scriptures. It might be through very, having a very close call. It, it might be through doing something that you never thought you would be capable of. How often does God in his kindness try to offer us a wake-up call about the path that we're going down and, and try to give us a glimpse of, of where that path leads and what it looks like to continue down that path. God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a great big wake-up call. And if God is giving that to you this morning, I pray that if you hear his voice, that you do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. The call is to repent before it's too late. God speaks to him through a dream, but God also speaks to him through a saint. He's got Daniel, by the grace of God, in that court, there, ready to speak up, speak 
to Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to notice with Nebuchadnezzar this incredible um, balance that he has between Christ-like compassion and Christ-like conviction, because he has this compassion for Nebuchadnezzar when he says to, to him, may it be to your enemies, may this dream be about your enemies. And he's, he's horrified at the thought of the dream. I mean, it's no wonder that none, none of his advisors wanted to tell him the dream because it was not a good dream and, you know, shoot the messenger kind of deal. But he's filled with compassion for this king, by the way, who has leveled their city to the ground, done horrendous things to their women and children and carried them off into exile. And here he is with Christ-like compassion, hoping that this is not for him, but for his enemies. It's extraordinary. But I want you to see as well as the Christ-like compassion, the Christ-like conviction because he doesn't pull any punches but says with crystal clarity outlines his pride and calls him to repent have a look at verse 25 can you imagine saying this to uh, Xi Jinping you'll be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals And then he calls him to repent. Verse 27 gives him very clear application. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. So it's very clear that this is a call to repentance. And it struck me recently that that an irrevocable, irreplaceable element of the gospel, which is the good news of God's grace, is a call to repent. Turn around, change your ways. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 3 says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. When Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost and they're cut to the heart and say, what shall we do? He says, repent for the forgiveness of sins. At the end of Luke 24, when he commissions his disciples, he says, repentance must be preached to all nations. It's an irrevocable part of the gospel. The Amplified Bible says repent means to change your inner self, your old way of thinking, to regret past sins and seek God's purpose in your life. In other words, the gospel without repentance is no gospel at all. It's not good news. It's bad news because you're continuing in your ways down the path of destruction. Christ-like compassion. Christ-like conviction. How gracious of God to speak to him through a dream and to speak to him through a saint. But then he gives Nebuchadnezzar space. In fact, 12 months, it turns out, verse 29, God speaks to him in these ways and then, and then he gives him space to choose whether or not he'll repent. And changes us. He gives him 12 months. And of course, what we see here about our great God is that mercy delights in delay. Mercy delights in delay. Like it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to keeping his promises, but he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I can't imagine where I'd be if God wasn't like that, if he wasn't patient with me, giving me room to repent. Praise God. But he's not there yet. For Nebuchadnezzar, things have to get worse before they get better. As he's looking out from the roof of his royal palace, does that remind you of any king? 
as he's looking out from the roof of his royal palace. Certainly reminds me of King David with all of his might and majesty at the peak of his power in 2 Samuel chapter 9. But this is Nebuchadnezzar in verse 30 says, Is this not the magnificent Babylon which I have built as a royal capital by my majesty and power and for my glorious majesty? I mean, this really sums up Nebuchadnezzar and what he's saying to himself in his heart. But I've got to say, I've probably said something very similar to myself at least a few times in my life. Like, for example, when I was the youth minister in my church in Melbourne, things went really well. God bless it. It it grew exponentially. I mean, I was on the speaking circuit. I was highly sought after. And outwardly, I would say, glory, glory to God. Let's give credit where credit's due. But, But inwardly? There was, a, there, was, there was part of me that was saying, is this not the magnificent youth ministry that I have built as a shining light by my amazing humility and by my unique gifts as a leader? Because, of course, if you don't have humility, you, you kind of just have to pretend the next best thing is like you have to pretend that you have it, Right? If you don't have it, you just have to pretend that you have it. Tim Keller talks about pride as a kind of cosmic plagiarism. Cosmic plagiarism. So so imagine if there's a beautiful uh, piece of music that one of you composed uh, and and I just ripped it off completely and, 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 you know, I got up here and and performed it maybe the catwalk last week. It took, took credit for it. Completely took credit for it. And, and, and people are like, wow, Kieran, that's amazing. Like, I knew, I knew you, like, there's all kinds of things that you could do, but I had no idea you were such an amazing composer and, and, and musician. If you were that composer and musician, how would you be feeling? What have I done? I've, I've, I've plagiarized. I've, I've stolen from it. I've stolen the glory that is due to you and taken it for myself. It's, it's plagiarism. And and actually, that's what pride is. Pride is saying, I got here by my own steam. I got here by my own strength. I built it with my own hands. And so, so it's all mine. I, I'm owed this. I'm, I'm entitled to this. This is, this is mine. I, I got here by my strength and my majesty. But, but of course, Paul, when he was writing to uh, Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast? as though you didn't. God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in his kindness through a dream. He speaks through in his kindness through a saint who has conviction as well as compassion. Then he gives him space, but he doesn't respond. In fact, if he was left to his, that space, he would be ruined completely. And so finally, God in his kindness ruins everything. He ruins everything. All of his power, all of his glory, all of his kingdom, all of his dreams come crashing down in an instant. And who would have thought this is God's kindness to him to ruin everything? Verse 33, immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society. He ate grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails became like birds' claws. Now, there's a medical term for this, believe it or not. Boanthropy. Look it up. 
boanthropy, a psychological disorder in which a human believes themselves to be a bovine. I'm not kidding. Look it up. But of course, the point here is, is, is that this is an affliction from God. This is the hand of the almighty God afflicting Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to see is that there's really only one way for him to be healed. And I want you to see the clue of that way in verse 34, where he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. He looked away from himself, his efforts, his accomplishments, his glory. And the only way that he could be healed was to turn his eyes away from himself and to lift his eyes to heaven. I look to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help does not come from the mountains, my help comes from the Lord. That's the only way to be healed of pride. It has to be God who does it. When you finally look away from your efforts and even your self-loathing and self-hatred that you can sometimes feel like how sad you are can even atone for your sins and get you right. You have to look away from self and look to God. As C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Lift your eyes to heaven. That's where your help comes from. C.S. Lewis puts it, as an illustration in a story in the Chronicles of Narnia about a boy called Eustace. He was a proud little boy, and in this story, he falls asleep with greedy thoughts on on top of the hoard of a dragon. And when he wakes up, he himself has been turned into a dragon. He's a dragon. He he tries to get rid of the skin by pulling it off, but, but he still finds no matter how hard he pulls, he's still a dragon underneath. And so finally he decides that he has to go to the Christ figure. Of course, that's Aslan. And Aslan says to him, I'll have to undress you. It's humiliating, right? And he has to let Aslan do it. And of course, Aslan's a lion, and so he's got great big claws. And, and he takes out his paws and his claws, and he rips away. And Eustace says this, I thought it was going to kill me. I thought it would go right into my heart. And so, of course, C.S. Lewis is showing that so many of our problems actually stem from our pride, the, the problem of pride. The only thing that will undress you, the only thing that will heal your pride is if you look away from yourself to God. And what I want to show you is that you need, when you look at him, to see two things together at the same time. Firstly, you need to see that you don't deserve anything from God except for his judgment. You have to see your cosmic plagiarism, that you've taken your own life as if you're the author of your life and it's all for you. And do it on your terms. You you have to see your cosmic plagiarism and see what you deserve before God. But at the same time, you need to see that you're the object of his incredible mercy and love and kindness and grace. And I want you to see this is exactly what happened for Nebuchadnezzar in the story. He comes to those two realizations together. Firstly, the judgment that he deserves. Verse 35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I thought I was something. I thought I was something, but now I realize before God that, that I'm nothing. 
And, and verse 35, verse 37, he says, God is able to bring those who walk, uh, to bring low those who walk in pride. He, he's seen his cosmic plagiarism and the judgment he deserves before God, but, but much more so, he's overwhelmed by mercy and kindness and grace. He's declaring God's praises to the people and he cannot believe that God would deal so kindly with him. Verse 36b, I was reestablished over my kingdom, as if to say, after all that, and still more greatness was added to me. He, he can't believe it. He opens, verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. He's praising God in heaven, verse 34b. I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured the one who lives forever. I mean, he's utterly overjoyed and astounded at the grace of God to such a sinner like him, as if saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He's singing praise to God for his mercy and grace. But I want to ask this question. How is God able to do that, to exalt him, to give him even more glory than he had before? I mean, we we can see how God can tear the proud down. We, We like to see people get their comeuppance and to be cut down to size. But how is God able to raise people up? People who were so proud and rebellious to, to such a high place, even greater majesty than they were. How is God able to do that? How could God forgive him and bless him so richly? Because, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was not the master of the universe. And yet, in defiance of God, he took the world as if it was. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ really is the master of the universe. And what did he do? He gave it up completely to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, there's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus in Isaiah chapter 52. God says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. You see, Jesus Christ was so beaten and gored, he was so lashed and gashed and pierced that he was was marred beyond recognition. He looked like an animal, even as Nebuchadnezzar was lowered to become like that of an animal, beyond recognition. Why did he do that? It says in Isaiah 52, it was to sprinkle us clean. It, It was to forgive us. It was to forgive us of all of our sins. It was to forgive us for all of our prideful thoughts where we set ourselves up as God, where we take our own lives and act like we're the author and we're the master of the universe and we're the center and we've raised ourselves up against God. John Sott says the essence of sin is man or woman, is man substituting himself for God. He says man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. 
But of course, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. That's why he did it, to sprinkle us clean. And when we see God's amazing grace and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could we ever boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? When we see our great pride and offence against him, raising ourselves against him and God's incredible kindness to us in lowering himself to the point of death on our behalf, how could we set our eyes on our own glory and our own proud pride? And how can we help singing like Nebuchadnezzar in the light of all that he is and all that he's done, singing our praise to the Lord God, the Most High God? That's the cure for pride. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. Lift your eyes to heaven and exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is able to humble the proud, And in his great kindness and mercy and love is able to exalt and redeem and to restore those who have been humbled and to lift us up and to seat us with the King of Kings, the King of glory, our great God and Father, so that we can stand with him and in his kingdom forever. Amen. Amen.